This is exactly right. Welcome to the Parent Footprint Podcast with Dr. Dan. I'm your host, Dr. Dan, and you are listening today to a invigorating conversation with our guest, and we are going to be talking about how to raise happy, healthy, and engaged children. And the way we do that as parents is that we become aware of ourselves as individuals and as parents. We live the way we want our children to be. We are their examples. We show them how to live with compassion, how to live with awareness, and how to live with engagement. And by doing so, we can raise our children in line with our own vision of successful parenting and engage in purposeful parenting to leave a legacy of children who love each other in the world and keep our world moving in the direction that we want it to be moving. We firmly believe in helping parents raise engaged kids by doing so with their own lives. Today's talk is 150% aligned with the mission of Parent Footprint. The title of today's conversation is Facing Fear and Finding Joy. And I'm so delighted to introduce you all to Jessica Teich, our guest. Jessica, before I say wonderful things about you, please say hello to everybody. Hello, and thank you, Dan, for having me. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. I want to tell everyone about your background, and then we were going to learn even more about your background today on the show. Jessica graduated summa cum laude from Yale and received her master's in philosophy from Oxford, where she was a Rhodes Scholar. Her previous book, Trees Make the Best Mobiles, Simple Ways to Raise Your Child in a Complex World, appeared at Vanity Fair, People, Us, and the Chicago Tribune, and was featured on the Today Show. For almost a decade, Jessica has worked as a literary manager at the Mark Taper Forum, commissioning and developing plays. She subsequently received a grant to write and direct a movie for the Directing Workshop for Women at the American Film Institute. Jessica served as head of the Biography Committee for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and her articles have appeared in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and numerous other publications. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, two daughters, and dog. And what we are going to feature today on the show, besides her wonderful story in life, is her latest book, The Future Tense of Joy. And all I can say to all you listeners is this is such an honest and powerful and courageous endeavor, Jessica. And I know you've heard that a lot, um, but I just have to tell you how moved I have been with your story. Thank you so much. Let's Let's start with your book. What brought you to your book and um, going on this latest journey? You know, I was sort of brought kicking and screaming to my book because... I thought I was doing a perfectly fine job in life as a wife and mother and friend and daughter, and um, I didn't realize that 
I was carrying all these fears from childhood because of things that had happened to me when I was younger. I thought that I had sort of um, metabolized them, if you will, and that I had sort of put the pain of the past in the past. But I came to realize that the things that had happened to me as a kid, most particularly that I'd been sexually abused as a 16-year-old, that was really haunting my children. I had have two daughters, and I came to realize that they were living in the shadow of a violence that they didn't even suspect. And that's not an easy process to to come to. Obviously, anyone who has survived um, trauma and dealing with trauma, it takes an incredible amount of energy to cope and to to try to put those memories and those experiences away, right? Like, we don't want to have to face them because they're so painful. I think that's one of the contradictions is that it seems like it would take more energy to deal with them, and so we don't want to. But in fact, dealing with them and incorporating them into one's life is an incredible reliever of stress. I have so much more energy and I'm so much more optimistic now that I'm not carrying the secret burden of all those memories. Mm-hmm. And what is more motivating for us uh as individuals to to go places maybe we don't want to go or to to work on things about ourselves or look at things than the health and love that we have for our children. I think that's right. I mean, that's what caused me to write my book. And um, it it sort of started with my realization, I guess, that my older daughter in particular was really struggling with these anxieties that I had put on her. She was afraid of, you know, I saw her one day opening a a doorknob, turning a doorknob with her elbows instead of her hands, because I had told her that doorknobs have germs and so do water fountains and public handrails. And, you know, I, I was afraid of everything, basically, because I had OCD, which I came by genetically. My dad and my aunt and many other members of my family have it. Um, But I also had post-traumatic stress disorder from having been sexually abused and beaten by a much much older man when I was 16 and never telling anyone about it and never getting any help for it. So these fears just swarmed around me like furies. But I didn't see it, and it was only when I saw it in my child that I realized that she was being imprisoned by these fears, too. So how did you go about taking the step towards towards health? Because, you know, all of us, all of us have our stuff, and I know our listeners here all want to be the best they can be for their kids. You know, where, where does one start when, when, you, when, when one has such a powerful realization? You know, for me, because I'm a writer and writer writing was the only thing I could ever do, it started with my writing down moments where I saw that she was, both my daughters were doing things that I felt like weren't healthy for them and were completely dictated by my fears. Because I don't think children have those fears. Even children who are born post 9-11, as my younger daughter was, I don't think they're naturally fearful. I think most of them. But I think that my girls were really living in a world that didn't seem safe to them. And I, and I quickly realized that they weren't going to feel safe until I helped them to do so. And that meant putting, not putting away the fears I had from the past, but trying to convert them into something else, trying to weave them into my present life so that I wasn't pretending it hadn't happened, but I also wasn't dwelling on it. Mm-hmm. And... 
so here you are dealing with legitimate feelings about being unsafe in the world. And then you brought up 9-11, which shook all of us at the core. And we've had a recent, uh, another terrorist attack, which um, has claimed lives of innocent um, young as well. You know, this is a, this is a, such a primary theme for us these days, um, raising our kids in this modern, unpredictable world. For me, uh, the Manchester tragedy had an additional element, which is that my older daughter received a grant to do research in, in the British Library this summer, and so she arrived in London just hours before that tragedy. Mm. And so for me, in a very visceral way, I had to find a way to calm myself, calm her, keep her focused, help her feel safe, figure out what mm-hmm. was reasonable to do. Is it reasonable to use public transportation? Probably not right away. Is it reasonable to go to a concert or a public gathering? Probably not right away. But, you know, I didn't obviously want to curtail her so much that she wasn't going to be able to have any kind of experience of living abroad because that was one of the most important things about having this wonderful opportunity. And so, as is true every day, pretty much, I had to balance my fears and what I know about the world from living in it for a relatively long time with the Mm -hmm. openness and trust and enthusiasm and excitement that I want her to feel. She's just beginning her journey, Mm -hmm. and I just didn't want that to be so shadowed by all of my own, you know, fears and um, anxieties. So how did you do that? I mean, really, what? how did you balance yourself and, and check yourself and then talk her through this? You know, I started, and I think this is often a good place to start, with sort of taking the temperature of her emotions sort of seeing mm-hmm. what she was feeling. Did she feel afraid? Did she feel nervous? Did she want to come home? Not that that was going to be an option. Um, uh, you know, what was she feeling? What did she think was safe to do? And then my husband knew somebody in the State Department, believe it or not, who was able to give us information based on what um, was being sent out to other people who work for the government overseas in terms of what would be safe and what wouldn't be safe. And that is instinctively what you would feel it would be. No, not using public transportation, not going to public gatherings, um, not sadly not um, eating at outdoor cafes. Um, you know, there were some restrictions that were unfortunate to apply because they really do take away from the experience of life in the moment. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think that that's, that that balance of of exuberance and vigilance is kind of a, a daily practice for all of us as parents and, and probably something we need to teach our children because the world that they're growing up in is not the world we grew up in, where you really, you know, the cliche is you could ride your bike around the com- corner and right. come home at dinner time, right. and there were no cell phones and no one knew where you were, but they knew you were safe. That right. doesn't, I don't know if that ever existed. In my case, probably not, because I got into so much trouble. As a 16-year-old, I was kind of um, preyed upon by an older man who saw that I was vulnerable in a way that made me uh, a good target for him. But it certainly isn't true anymore that you can just disappear for hours as a kid and not worry anyone. And, you know, I think it's important. I'm not sure we need to track our children's every movement. I know there are apps that allow you to do that. But I do think communication is, you know, key, that you have a sense with your child every day of what the plan is and that you both try to keep to that as closely as you can. 
Yeah, and what I what I'm hearing you say is, especially with this Manchester incident being so recent, is you know having to check yourself and your own emotions and fear and reactions, and then taking the temperature of your daughter to see where she's at because. If you if you know where you're at and you can get a sense where she's at, then you can purposely, you know, intervene uh, and parent. And it sounds like you did a combination of, you know, helping with some objective information, like how to stay safe, but also talking her through other aspects of the experience so she can she can still engage in life instead of doing what we're talking about on the show is like living in fear, you know, not wanting to live in fear. Right. I think that's right. And, and I do think in, a, in some version we do that every day as parents. And my mm-hmm. husband once said that, you know, if he could, he'd have both our daughters, one's 21 now, the other's 15, still sleeping in a, in a crib at the foot of our bed, um, you know, <laughs> because we would never let them go if we had the choice in some way, because it is scary out there, and it's hard, very hard to, um, to surrender them to the world. But that's, I think, the most important thing we do as parents is to emancipate them. That's, Mm -hmm. I think, the job. If there's one thing that we do other than nurture them, it's set them free. I totally agree. Um, We have three uh, teenagers. Two of them are girls, so I can definitely relate um, to the crib analogy. And um, (laughs) also really want to hear... The messages, um, you know, violence perpetrated towards women, uh, girls and women, and uh, messages given to girls and women. You know, you, you have some very important, strong messages about, you know, how, how do we take this on and how do we raise our daughters in this world today? Yeah, I, you know, I was a very perfectionistic teen, and I know many girls in particular suffer from that feeling that they can't fail and they can't fall apart and they're incredibly self-conscious and one of the things I talk about in my book is is the need to sort of move beyond oneself because I discovered in research for my book that girls who volunteer tend to be much less self-focused and much less self-critical and so connecting Mm -hmm. to other people collaborating with other people in some real sustained way that is very liberating for girls. It takes the focus off themselves. They don't have to be looking at their phones all day, every day. And I sometimes think that schools don't encourage kids to volunteer in a meaningful enough way because often you just have to do it long enough to check it on your, you know, resume or fulfill a school requirement. Um, But it's really sustained activity where you dig deep and create real relationships with other people that's what I think saves a lot of teens from, you know, the, the downward spiral of self-focus, which can be so devastating. Mm-hmm. So connection and community really makes connection, a difference. Community, and, and I think that that's one of our jobs as parents is to, is to model for them how you create a community, how you reach out to other people, how you sense that other people may be in need or in trouble how you sustain relationships over time. And, you know, I think kids need to know that their people are out there and we need to try and help them find their people if we can because everybody has a place where they belong. And I was really a loner as a kid. I was a dancer. I was a writer. I didn't feel like I really belonged anywhere. And I think that's part of the reason I got lost into this Hmm. Um, almost year-long experience of abuse because I didn't have anybody. I felt I could say, I'm in trouble, 
uh, including my parents. I didn't know that I could go to them and say, can you help me? And in a way, I look back on that, and I think the responsibility for that isn't mine, but I was such a perfectionist and so sort of good at the things that 16-year-old girls like to be good at that I think I didn't realize that just because I couldn't find a way out of this violence that nobody else could either. And so I never even tried to um, engage anybody else in helping me. I just thought, I'm going to figure this out. And finally, at the end of almost a year, I realized I wasn't. And that if I stayed, I probably would have ended up dead, not necessarily because this man intended to kill me, but just because the violence was escalating to a point where it was way beyond anything I can control. And so important for everyone who's listening to hear, um, you know, whether one has perfectionistic tendencies, which is, you know, a very high um, self-expectation that um, has to do it um, really well and by themselves, um, or just that one might be even, you know, lesser on the, on, on the perfectionist spectrum, but just doesn't feel comfortable asking for help. Like, how important is it for us to tell our kids to, to come to us, to reach out to another fam, trusted family member that, that they don't have to do this alone. They don't have to suffer depression or anxiety alone. That, that, you know, to take away the stigma and the shame that comes with some of these things, unfortunately. I agree. And they don't have to suffer through their math homework alone. I'm, I often <laughs> yeah. say to my younger daughter, let's sit in the room together. I'll work on whatever it is I'm writing. And she'll sort of perch nearby and... There's just something about the warmth of another person, even if you're not interacting, which I think is very comforting. I always felt as a parent that I wanted to be the person to whom my daughters could say anything, no matter how Mm -hmm. inconvenient or uncomfortable or embarrassing or perplexing. And as a result, I've had a lot of uncomfortable and perplexing conversations with them. But I always felt like that's one of the things I wanted most to do for them as a parent is to be a safe place where they could talk about anything, friendship, you know, the opposite sex, homework, teachers, tensions between, you know, among their friends, because they don't have any other way of learning how to process that. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, as parents, we need to help them, you know, sort of uh, filter through what's important and what's not. We need to help them create a sense of context and perspective. I think having a sense of perspective on things is very important and not something that's always easy to do with the developing adolescent brain. No, we know that that is quite a complex organism, an in-progress organism. Um, The other thing I'm thinking about, yeah, work in progress. Jessica, the other thing I'm thinking about as you're talking is, you know, I've written a lot and talked a lot about being a uh, recovering perfectionist myself. And what we don't always, so this is so important for us to be aware of ourselves that we, that our kids are watching and absorbing everything. They're they're watching us, they're listening to us, they're absorbing our energy, whether it's, you know, um, joyous energy or anxious energy, they're absorbing all of it. And if we are going through life with a high expectation for ourselves to always do it right, always look right, always say the right thing, we are unintentionally modeling that you need to perform at a really, be at a really high level um, without even knowing that we're passing that on to our children sometimes. I think that's right. And I think even those little moments where you lose your keys and you kind of, you know, sort of 
cuss yourself, I think those moments register very deeply on them. And so mm-hmm. I always try, even when I'm doing something foolish that doesn't seem very important, I try mm-hmm. to make light of it. And if something bigger happens that doesn't go my way, I also just try to treat it with a sense of, you know, humor and perspective. Because I think to them, especially as adolescents, everything looms very large. And I just think as parents, it's important for us to help them create a a sense of scale so that they're able to go through their lives with a sense of what does matter deeply and what can just be survived or brushed off or dealt with another day. Mm -hmm. And so fear, anxiety and fear is... It's just a common part of our life these days, both externally, as we've talked about, um, and also internally for most people. So how, how do you recommend people start moving from fear to joy? You know, I think it's a daily process. And one thing I've learned as I've gone around the country talking about my book is that many people think the way to move away from your past demons or conquer your past fears is to just kind of suppress them, but in a different way. I don't think we ever leave them behind. I think we just try and incorporate them into our future in terms of saying, look what I've survived. I got through that, so probably I can figure out, you know, what to do in this fender bender. Or, you know what I mean? You you Mm -hmm. see that you've gotten through things and that they've made you stronger. I mean, it's that old thought that the skin that's scarred is the strongest. And I do think that's true. And that sense of resilience, which seems to really recommend people to success, in quotes, more almost than any other quality, that ability to bounce back and to mm-hmm. moving, um, I think that that's a daily process. And, and some days, like in any kind of recovery, some days are better than others. And right. some days it seems like you're just not going to be able to do this and you're always going to be, um, you know, uh, vulnerable so vulnerable that you're not going to be able to feel joy or be present. I just wanted mm-hmm. to find a way to turn the noise off in my head so that I could hear what other people were saying and so that I could see my children without the vibrating tension of, are they safe, are they safe, are they safe, which was kind of um, something that I struggled with every minute of every day. You know, that's a, that's a really important point um, for everyone to hear is when, you know, it's, I, I think, natural for us to worry about our kids. It's probably part of our evolutionary um, inheritance to make sure our kids uh, survive and perpetuate our, our lineage. When it gets too big, it just it gets in the way. We get absorbed with our fearful thoughts about what might happen, and that it keeps us from seeing the larger picture and it prevents us from fully living. And then we end up limiting our kids experience of fully living with the, with, which is guided by that chatter in our, in our heads. I think we limit our kids ability to use us as a resource because we're not available to them. We're so wrapped up in our own fears or our own regrets about our past that I don't think they can really get through to us. And, and it keeps us from being vigilant and kind of alert to what's really happening with them. So mm-hmm. I think that, I mean, I talk in my book, in the first chapter of my book, I was literally stalking my older daughter as she would get off at the bus stop and walk eight and a half minutes to the ballet studio. I was so afraid because the bus stop was a public bus stop at a very busy crosswalk, 
and I was sure she would come to grief there, and I hid in the bushes day after day, watching her make that eight-and-a-half-minute walk. It was absurd. I see that now. In the moment, I thought it was a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Right, And then right. one day, she turned around and said, you know, Mom, I can see you. And besides, <laughs> oh, she said, it's a crosswalk, not a crack den. And I thought, <laughs> how, how does my 12-year-old even know what a crack den is? That's where my <laughs> mind went first. But then, you know, almost immediately I thought, this is ridiculous. What am I doing mm-hmm. here in the bushes? Um, you know, why won't I trust my daughter and trust the world enough to let her have the experience of freedom that comes from being a 12-year-old who's been allowed to take a public bus and walk on her own? And what an incredible journey that was for her. And mm-hmm. I, I needed to let her have that. And I needed to balance the chances that something terrible could happen to her against the real possibility that she was going to be safe and that she would learn so much from having the freedom to do that. That's that, that important and critical separation that we have to find between our own life and experiences and that of our child's, right? It's sometimes it's so, it's so uh, mucky at times to, to try to find that line, but you found it. You found it. Well, and I think, again, it's a sort of daily practice of, you know, sort of looking at what the day is going to bring to your kids and figuring out whether or not the chances are that they're going to be safe doing Mm -hmm. whatever it is they're going to be doing that day, whether it's playing soccer or going home to a friend's house, a friend whose parents you haven't met, and so you don't exactly know what the feeling in the household might be, and just kind of trying to use your rational mind to say the likelihood that something terrible is going to happen is much smaller than the likelihood that this is really going to be of benefit to her or him. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, a, that's a weighing or of, of, of you know, probabilities that I think as parents we do every day. Definitely. You know, when we were preparing for the show, when we were... Um you brought up the uh, book and now TV series, um, 13 Reasons Why. And I think it's important that we just spend a moment on that because there are a lot of us out there who are really concerned about what's being portrayed to our kids, almost glorifying um, suicide and that all the adults in this uh, story were not helpful and everyone was mean. And, you know, in your research, you're finding that when people are connected together and there are helpful people, people don't have to take such drastic measures. Do you have any comments about that and, and, and this day and age of, you know, what we're seeing with, with, with stuff like 13 Reasons Why? Yeah, you know, I didn't watch it, but my daughter and all her friends did, and so I've heard a lot about it. And I was very glad that she and some of her friends also came to me to talk about it, because I think, as you say, it sort of glamorized suicide. And also, all the adults, every single one, seemed to be clueless and useless and self-absorbed. Mm-hmm. And um, and as my 15-year-old said, that's not true of all adults, which I was happy to hear her say. But also, the girl at the center of the story seemed to be really suffering from some kind of mental um, illness, and no one seemed to recognize that or to try and get right. her help for that. And, you know, when I did all the research I did on suicide, because there's a character in my book who does commit suicide that's all based on a true story, I discovered that most people, if they can get through the period of acute crisis, never try to kill themselves again. 
And so it's about mm-hmm. getting somebody through that period of acute crisis, and that involves other people stepping in and trying to help. And I did, you know, there are some very good services now for teens who feel troubled, many um, online mm-hmm. and also locally. And what they offer, first and foremost, is a chance to talk to somebody else. And I think that that's really what opens the door um, for a lot of people to get out of that period of crisis is is to connect to someone. And as I say in my book, I was very surprised to learn this. Many more people commit suicide in less densely populated places. So that even though we have this notion of a city like Manhattan being incredibly isolating, um, many more people kill themselves in Alaska or Montana than in New York. And that is, to my mind, because there's something about the density the intimacy with other people that keeps people safe. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's true, especially for these teenagers, because we know that suicide among teens can be contagious. And so I think it's incredibly important to get in there and help kids process this, talk to them as much as they want to talk about it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they'll want to talk about it at the most inconvenient moments. Um, And I just always try to make myself aware. So I sometimes take the focus off my kids by not actually looking at them. I'm driving, looking at the road, or I'm emptying the dishwasher. And that may be the moment when she most wants to talk about something. Um, And I just try to always keep myself available because I think the best way for these teens to find their way through safely to adulthood is with our companionship, with our help processing everything that happens to them. Hmm. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell everybody if there was one thing only. You talk about this as a day by day thing: facing fear, finding joy, going towards joy. What is one thing you would recommend to our listeners to do to try to cultivate this joy while moving away from fear? I just think trying to be present which is also the hardest thing to do, trying to quiet (laughs) the noises in one's head, trying to look out the window and see the natural light, trying to just gauge your child's mood when she comes home from school. Does she want company? Does she want a snack? Does she need some time um, by herself? But to try to stay close without, you know, colliding or interfering or disrupting, just to try and be as as warm and open and vigilant as you can. And it's incredibly hard. I think that's why parenting is not for the faint of heart. It's very hard to be open to your kids and have them come to you and say they're unhappy or they're confused or they're being bullied. Uh, In a way, it's something no parent wants to hear, but I think that's precisely the moment when we're going to be doing our job as parents the best because that's when they really need us. Absolutely. So it's time for our parent footprint moment. And basically everything or most of what we've talked about is a parent footprint moment. And that is where you get to tell us about a time where you became aware of something about yourself as an individual or as a parent. And that awareness had a positive impact on your children. You have shared some of these stories. Anything else you want to add? Well, I do know for my children that I didn't allow them to have the kind of, you know, designer ice cream that you go out for in a little shop where they mix all the ingredients together because I was convinced that whatever ingredient it was that made these other ingredients cohere 
must be poisonous. And I thought of this because mm. when I um, when they had some ice cream left over and I put it in the freezer and I looked at it the next day, it had completely separated into these various elements. For whatever reason, I decided that that must be, you know, life-threatening to them. And I know that my younger daughter said to me that she hoped that one day I would allow them to have, you know, this kind of designer ice cream. And I thought, <laughs> of course, they should have whatever ice cream they want occasionally because they're kids. And it made me realize that I was really keeping them from these essential experiences as children that they needed to have. And had to put your fear aside. And for those of us who have had fear and face fear, it, you got to go deep because it is scary, right? I mean, and fear of ice cream is about right. as, as ridiculous as a fear can be, but those fears feels so real and it involves a lot of talking to oneself to say you know what it may feel real but it's not it's really not something to be frightened of jessica thank you so much for sharing your story you're inspirational you are to me um, i know you are to everyone who hears you speak and one of the things that i love how proudly you own the title of author, mother, and husband, you know, really focusing on this present, excuse me, wife to your husband, uh, focusing on what is so important and this presence and how important it is to be present and be there for our kids. Um, Thanks so much for talking today. Well, thank you, Dan, for all the work you're doing. And it was my absolute pleasure. Will you please tell everyone where they can find out more about your writings and your speakings so they can they, so they can follow you? Well, thank you. I am I have a Facebook uh account and a website which is byjessicateich.com. It's all one word. And um and I also write regularly for the Huffington Post and for Psychology Today. So you can also find me there. Um I'm new to social media and so reading all these various um, things feels like reading hieroglyphics to you, but I do have a Twitter account and an Instagram account, and you can find all of that on my website. It's www.byjessicateich.com. I am very impressed with, I too am fight, uh, I'm, I'm stepping into uh, facing the fear of the social media world that we all are finding ourselves in. Um, Jessica, thanks so much. Everyone, thanks for listening to the show, Facing Fear and Finding Joy with our wonderful Jessica Teich. You can learn more about Parent Footprint and these podcasts at www.parentfootprint.com. Remember, in order for us to raise happy, healthy, engaged, and aware kids, we need to be this way in our own life so we can parent with purpose and intention. I'll leave you with the same quote I leave you every time that I ask myself every morning. What footprint do you want to leave?